Yes, in our passage today, there is violence. What's called described violence. It describes something historical that actually happened. To be honest, this is one of the darkest passages in the whole Bible. I need to say that it includes violence, and in particular, sexual violence. But why is this here in the Bible? It makes us feel uncomfortable, and quite right, so it should. We know from history that Old Testament times were very violent. So if there's no mention of violence in the historical texts in the Bible, then we'd say, well, the Bible's not believable, it's not plausible. We'd say it ignores or covers up violence, but ignoring it would also be inhumane, as we'll see. So how should we approach these, these difficult passages? Well, I think we must be humble. We must be aware of our own situation, aware of our own prejudices. Now, I've never suffered serious violence, and I hope you haven't either. But those who have will receive these sort of passages differently. These texts are here for a reason, because they matter, as we will see. I should say right now, there are no heroes in our passage today. You won't find any quotations from these chapters on kitchen calendars. Now, when God gets hold of us, it won't be comfortable. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable. It won't lead, yield answers like slot machines. Now, you might remember the cycle of judges, where Israel falls into idolatry, cries out, God raises up a judge, Israel repents, everything is fine, then they go back into sin again, and it goes round and round and round. And we've seen throughout the book of Judges that cycle. Things have been getting worse and worse, and in many ways today, we've reached rock bottom. We'll hear of a woman who suffered appallingly. Now, it seems to me, looking at various commentaries that this woman's often overlooked. She's often almost denigrated and ignored. Well, she won't be ignored today. Lastly, before our reading, here's a question. Why are God's people called Israel? Now, if you remember, it was Abraham who was given the promise of a great nation. So why wasn't this nation called Abraham? It was actually named after Jacob, who was given the name Israel which means he who wrestles with God. Some of you may remember the story of Jacob when he wrestled all night with a man who realized that he was wrestling with God. We have to wrestle with these difficult passages in the Bible, like I have for the past few weeks. If you're reading Chaucer, some great English literature, for example, you can't expect to take it at face value after just one reading. You need to investigate to wrestle. But you might say, why on earth are we thinking about this passage on Palm Sunday? We've been going through the book of Judges, and one of the great advantages of going through these books is that we don't miss out passages that make us feel uncomfortable. We look at them head on. Well, we will get to Palm Sunday, trust me. So now it's time for us to step into the wrestling ring, as it were. Our story actually starts quite well, so David will now come and set the scene for us.
The reading is from Judges chapter 19, starting at verse 1, and that's on page 262, 262 of the Church Bibles. A Levite and his concubine. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, "'Refresh yourself with something to eat.' Then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself. Wait till afternoon. So the two, met, two, two of them ate together. Then when the man and his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let us stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His father replied, No. We won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gebir. He added, Come, let us try to reach Gebir or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gebir in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gebir, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, 
and bread and wine for ourselves, your servant, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply you whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, David. Well, I feel we really do need to pray, don't we, before we consider these chapters. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, it's a very difficult passage. Help us to approach it humbly. Help us to be willing to learn what you have to teach us. Amen. Well, we've got some bookends here. Would you like to just look back to verse 1 of chapter 19? In those days, Israel had no king. Now, if you look right to the end of the book of Judges, the last verse of chapter 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or as other translations put it, which I prefer, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Those are our bookends. That sets the scene for all that we're going to think about today. These words are repeated several times throughout Judges. They're the key to what's going on here. Now, the problem is not so much what the people actually did, so much as the standard that was governing them. They did what was right in their own eyes. Hospitality to horror. Here we have a, a Levite who is in no way romantic. He takes a concubine. Now, this word can be translated in more than one way. A concubine is thought of as somebody of not very great importance, who's, who's just like a, a slave, somebody to just to give pleasure to a man and is of very low value, of low estate. But other translations show us that the word can also mean like a secondary wife. Far from anything that's way, beyond, way outside of God's ideal. But she is a wife. And in fact, in chapter 20, she is described, uh, the, rather in chapter 20, the Levite is described as her husband. Now, the New International Version we have here says that she was unfaithful to him. But again, scholars has shown that that word could also be interpreted differently. It could also be interpreted that she was angry with him. Now, if you think about it, that puts a completely different complexion on her position and her relationship with her husband. But she's angry with him, they've quarreled, they've fallen out, and she's gone back to daddy. Now, the Levite's gone to get her back. Now, you might think, well, that's quite good, actually. He wants her back. Why does he want her back? You might think that's good until we see what he does later. But we've got a great host here to start with, haven't we? The Levite's father-in-law. The Levite wants him to, the, the Levite's father-in-law wants him to stay there for a long time. 
and she persuade, he persuades him to stay on for several days, and it's not till the fifth day that he leaves. Now, as they leave, the, the Levite goes off with his wife and with the servant, and it's getting dark, it's late in the day, and the servant says, I think we should stay in a town just near here before it gets dark. But the Levite says, no, I don't want to stay outside of Israel. We won't be safe. I want to stay in a town in Israel. How wrong could he be? They end up stopping in a town called Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is in, is in part of Israel, which is part of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's important for what comes a little later. Now, what used to happen is that travelers would come into this town and they'd go into the, into the town square and they'd hang around there until someone came and offered them hospitality. They're waiting in the square. It's getting dark. Now, if this was a film, you could imagine the scary music starting at this point. Eventually, an old man on his way home from work does offer them hospitality. And the Levite tells him, Mark, I had business in Bethlehem. Makes him sound like a salesman, doesn't it? He doesn't mention his wife. He says he wants to go to the house of the Lord. He wants to make his mission look as good as he can. And the old man says, come back to my place. Whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. More scary music, I think. That's where our reading ended, but that's not the end of the story. Now, the wife at this point had two men with her. She should have been safe. So they're in the house, and the Levites, having a good time with his host, they've hit the bottle, if you like, and are really having a good time, when suddenly there comes a noise. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. They want the Levite. The old man says, no, 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 no don't, don't do this terrible thing. Have my virgin daughter instead. Dreadful. Does this remind you of anything? We need to read this story alongside the account in another chapter 19, chapter 19 of Genesis, when Lot and his family were living in Sodom. And all the men of the city surrounded the house and Lot offered them his four daughters. Clearly our narrator here is wanting us to realize and is telling us that things have got so bad in Israel, it was as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the old man should be protecting the women of the household. Now our narrator here is not trying to make men look good, quite the opposite. In the end, the Levite throws out his wife. We read that the men raped and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. After these men had abused her all night, this poor woman crawls back to the house where she should have been safe. Does she try knocking on the door and they won't let her in? She collapses with her hands on the threshold. Such a pathetic scene. Well, the next morning, the Levite gets up. Yes, he gets up. He's been to sleep. He's been all right while his wife was being attacked and abused all night. He goes to the door, 
having had his breakfast, and he sees his wife collapsed on the door with her hands on the threshold. What does he say? Get up! Let's go! She doesn't make a sound. So he dumps her on his donkey and sets off for home. We don't know if she's dead at this point, but it seems very possible. I'm running out of words to describe this man. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Some people have tried to say that the main lesson here is hospitality, not the homosexuality. The Bible is absolutely clear that homosexual practice is a sin, but it's not the only sin here. There are some sins that we love to hate, aren't there? Child abuse, murder, maybe sins that we're not actually tempted to commit ourselves. We mustn't pick and choose the sins that we hate. All sin is abhorrent to God. So how should we react to the sins of others? Well, the first thing we must do, we must hate our own sin. Look inside ourselves and hate our own sin. That should be the first reaction. Well, back to our story. Just when you think it can't get worse, when he gets home, the Levite dismembers her body into 12 parts and sends one to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Dreadful. But it does achieve what he has in mind. He gets the Israelites all fired up. How did the Israelites react? We see in verse 20, they say, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. What do they mean? Are they referring to the gang rape in Gibeah, which is part of Israel, or to the grisly parcels they'd received? Now, our narrator here wants us to think that it could have been either, or both. But Israel has never been so united. They'd never been so much unity amongst the Israelite tribes. But as we'll see, they end up fighting each other. Why couldn't Israel ever got that united against the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, the Philistines? Why is it that when Israel can really get itself together, it's against Israel? Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we're now going to take a fairly brief overview of the next two chapters. Here we are in chapter 20, and we're in civil war. It's all of Israel against the Benjamite tribe. Israel had no king. The Levite is asked to address the people of Israel, but he is deceitful. He is not honest. Let's look at what he says. He minimizes his sin. He makes it less than it really is, and he maximizes the sin of others and makes them worse than it really is. He does a great job of making himself look good, while at the same time making the Benjamites look bad. Well, he says, I and my wife came to give ear in Benjamin to spend the night. It's true. He talks about the leaders of Gibeah surrounding the house. Not true. He says, they wanted to kill me. 
Not true. The people surrounding the house were some of the men of Gibeah. He doesn't mention that he threw his wife out to the men. Are we always truthful when we speak? In court many times, at work as an expert witness, I've often had to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yes, sometimes the truth can hurt, and it's not always helpful. Of course, we have to be wise in dealing with those who are vulnerable. Now, it's been said, we should always speak the truth, but we should not always speak. Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that we should speak the truth in love. And so, after the Levite's speech, his deceit and his dishonesty, what do we get? We get civil war. The Benjamites, which is the area of the town of Gibeah where these wicked men were, they won't give up these men. They choose to side with these wicked men rather than with God, rather than to fulfill God's commands. And so we have civil war. There's a great contrast here. If you remember last week, we heard in chapter 17 about the Levite, another Levite, who became a personal priest to a Danite with his house of idols. How did Israel respond? With a yawn. Unlike the way they responded to the atrocities at Gibeah. The first was religious, the second was moral. We really need to make sure that we hate all sin equally. In our own lives, when we're confronted with sin, the proper response is not to become defensive and go to war, but to confess our sins. And so we don't have time to go into the detail of the civil war, but it rages backwards and forwards, and eventually there are just 600 Benjamites left. So in the next chapter, it's about finding brides for these Benjamites in order to preserve the tribe of Benjamin. Otherwise, it would die out, and that would have been unthinkable for the Israelites. So really, this next section is about careful what you wish for, or careful what you make an oath for. There's such a thing as buyer's remorse, isn't there? I wonder if you've ever hovered over something on eBay and wondered whether to click, and then you thought, why on earth did I buy that? Well, the Israelites in the Civil War had succeeded in virtually wiping out the tribe of Benjamin. What are they going to do now? How are they going to keep this tribe from extinction? That would have been unthinkable for an Israelite. What they come up with is a totally half-baked solution. They twist the truth. They twist God's word. They set up a situation which results in the mass abduction and rape of young women who suffer like the, is the Levite's wife. They just amplified the original sin a hundredfold. Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The behavior of the Israelites here shows us just how morally and spiritually bankrupt the whole nation had become. But at the end of Judges, end of the book of Judges, we have a miracle. Despite everything, 
The nation of Israel still exists. The tribe of Benjamin still exists. God is gracious. Paul, who wrote much of the books of the New Testament in his letters, Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So in conclusion, we're just going to look back to the poor wife of the Levite and think about why, why, why is this account in the Bible? What does this account say to our culture today? The rape culture today, sexual, where sexual violence against women is still widespread. Now you'll have heard of the, the Me Too movement in America, which started in the USA when the Hollywood director Harvey Weinstein was accused of sexual crimes against film stars. These are the words of one of the women he abused. Weinstein's behaviour was an open secret passed around on the Whisper network that had been furrowing through Hollywood for years. It allowed for people to warn others to some degree, but there was no route to stop the abuse. There wasn't a place for us to report these experiences. So this is similar to a quote by the Holocaust survival, Ailey Weisel. I can tolerate the memory of silence, but not the silence of memory. And something that the Me Too movement has taught us, taught us is that stories like this must be told. People must be heard. Things that are allowed to fester in the dark grow and grow in power, but things that are brought out into the light can lose their power. And the fact that stories like this are in our Bible, in Scripture, should embolden us to talk about things like this. Domestic abuse, child abuse, pornography, rape. These things need to be brought out of dark corners where they've been brushed aside because people's experiences need to be heard. That's the route to healing. For the Me Too movement, if you're silent, you're party to the abuse. For Ailey Weissel, silence is erasing the victim. There is a rape culture in our country today. There is an abysmally low conviction rate. I've, as a member of a jury on a rape case, I've seen this at first hand for myself. We must not be silent. But we're still talking about this woman today and the ordeal she went through. Because of the scriptures, she has not fallen silent. She remains a challenge. She remains a rebuke to those who oppress and take advantage of the weak. And she's a warning and an encouragement to those who have the opportunity to safeguard others. If this story is ignored, it would be inhumane. But where does this story lead us today? Can you remember the name of the Levite? Can you remember the name of the Levite's wife? The name of the old man who gave them hospitality? There are no names here. This is very unusual. But actually, there are names here. Look at our first verse we had our reading today, chapter 19. Can you see where the Levite's wife came from? Can you think of someone else who came from Bethlehem? Someone else whose body was broken? Someone else who also suffered appalling violence and abuse that wasn't deserved? Our narrator here is giving us clues. Our narrator has not given us names of people. We have place names. 
And we find the answers to these clues in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But we have a king, Jesus. Is Jesus your king? Our greatest need, as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, is deliverance from our sins. God's story is a story of deliverance, and his ultimate deliverance comes through Jesus. This is God's salvation plan, the plan that our narrator is pointing us to. Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth to die for us, to make a way for us to have a relationship with his Father God and to rise from the dead to prove that everything he said is true. This is God's plan, not a deceitful plan like the wicked, uncaring Levite, not some fudge of a plan that the Israelites came up with. Jesus didn't bend the rules to save mankind. Jesus identified with us from above and became a man. He never sinned. He laid down his life so that our sins could be forgiven and we can have eternal life. God's salvation is so much better than any half-baked man-made effort. Jesus, who came to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus, who honoured and exalted women. Jesus, who we remember today, rode into Jerusalem, humbly on a donkey, yet in triumph. 